his blessings upon you today. If you have ever traveled in the States or maybe in Australia, long distances, uh, you know that these are very big countries and uh, the distances are vast. And it's not uncommon for families to take long driving vacations. And uh, uh, sometimes we'll drive 8 to 10, maybe even 12 hours a day. Uh, I don't know how much that, a vacation that is, but we're trying to get to another place usually. And if you're traveling with kids, what is it that you always hear? Are we there yet? You know how I solved that, moms and dads? Every time they said that, I started driving slower. And so pretty soon they caught on. And so when the littlest ones would say, Daddy, our... And the other ones go, Shh, he's going to drive slower. We won't get there as fast. We won't get there as fast. And then you hear stuff like, you know, make him stop looking out my window and things like that. You know, the, the, the kinds of griping and, and complaints that you hear often with uh, children... Uh, in, in, in such travels, uh, uh, many of us are familiar with those sorts of things. Uh, it was the same thing with the children of Israel. Uh, it was not, are we there yet? But there was uh, much griping and complaining and grumbling, as we've seen here in the text today. That's a common theme. We have three incidents here, three events, and successively we hear that the children of Israel on this journey are grumbling and they're complaining Uh, against God, their father. Uh, This is just right after the passage that Andrew preached two weeks ago uh, in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider. He's thrown into the sea, this magnificent God who has championed uh, uh, over the, and triumphed over the armies of Pharaoh and drowned them in the Red Sea, and he's brought his people over uh, without getting their feet wet, and this marvelous salvation uh, that has taken place. And the people of Israel may have well thought, okay, uh, our difficulties are at an end. Everything that's done, uh, uh, the waters have just washed over the armies of Egypt, and uh, now we are uh, just going to ease on into the land of promise. The reality is that their difficulties are just starting, just beginning. And that's one of the things that, uh, God willing, as you progress through this book of Exodus, you will see uh, God's dealing with his people in this way. Um, The fact that uh, uh, they're going to encounter difficulties, though, does not mean that God is not with them. That's often the case, uh, that, that we evaluate things. When, when troubles come, we wonder, where is God? Has God abandoned us? And uh, our perception of reality is skewed to what we can perceive at that moment. And uh, we learn not to uh, trust in God, but to look to the present circumstance, and, and we fail to hear God's promises. God is the one who is going to lead them through these trials one by one uh, that they face uh, all throughout here in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and and Deuteronomy and for us even today as he leads us on uh, to glory. Uh, In the text that we see here today, God in each of these circumstances is leading them every bit of the way. And he does so uh, in ways that is going to open up their hearts to expose uh, what is exactly going on within their hearts and show them, show them their need of the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we've got three similar passages here uh, before us this morning. Rather lengthy reading here in Exodus 15 and 16 and part of of 17. Um, uh, This particular series is like one of those tours where you go to Europe and see Europe in three days. What was that? Oh, that was Belgium. You know, one of, one of those kinds of tours. But uh, this is to get you familiar with this a bit. And in each of these circumstances, we see the Israelites with either water or food. And in every one of these circumstances, they respond to this crisis that has come uh, with grumbling against the Lord. In each instance, the Lord is responding to their griping and grumbling by miraculously meeting their needs. First off, I want you to notice here in in, uh, chapter 15, this little bit uh, that we have here in 15, we see God's grace is extended to the people. Uh, Beginning at verse uh, 22, he's going to make the bitter water to become sweet. And, And notice here, this is just three days after they're standing there on the banks of the Red Sea, and I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. They're rejoicing and beating their tambourines and and just uh, dancing uh, with glee at what God has done in rescuing them and redeeming them. But now, just three days later, they are uh, in the wilderness, and they are without water. Imagine when they do get to water, uh, when they arrive at Marah, and they're there, and oh, hallelujah, you know, we, we found some water, and they get down, and oh, the nastiness of that water. It's quite bitter, and it's undrinkable uh, for them. Now, remember here, the size of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel here, we're told there's some 600,000 men of fighting age that God had taken out of Egypt. Those are the men uh, who are, would be in military age. But then you factor in the young ones and the old ones and the women folk. And some scholars believe we have about two and a half million people. And on top of that, you have all their herds, their livestock that are with them as well. They're going to drink much more water than the people are going to drink. This is a, a, a need of Uh, ginormous, as we might say, gigantic and enormous proportions. And what is going to happen here? Uh, The water is bitter. Uh, It appears that it may have been large percentages of of mineral salts that have dissolved into the water. It's it's just not uh, something that would be drinkable. Uh, And this presents the people of Israel a a very real problem. Uh, They are an entire nation in the wilderness, no water. It is a matter of life and death. God does not expect his people to act as if uh, our problems are not real. Uh, these are real problems that they have. You, you hear of some people today who says, oh, no, 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 you, you may not utter anything negative. You may not say anything uh, that appears to be bad. Uh, that would somehow bring that uh, into fruition. No, no, no. We, we have real problems that we face. We can't pretend that they don't happen. What God expects of us is for us to cry out to him in the midst of these needs. Israel's previous experiences should have taught them to trust in the Lord, that that he would provide for them, but uh, they are a little bit slow in catching this lesson and learning this. 
Uh, now, how could a lack of water be a problem for a god who turned the Nile into blood and separated the Red Sea? They've already had proofs over and again of the power of this almighty God. And so why then do they have a, a problem here? Why then uh, have they not, as we would say, connected the dots, go from this is God, here's our problem, oh, this God can deal with our particular problems. They have every reason to trust in the Lord in the face of this crisis. But what do they do? They don't cry out to God. They grumble against him. They gripe. We shouldn't forget that God is the one who brought Israel to Mara, to that place of the bitter waters. He could have brought them to a place where there was good drinking water, abundant drinking water, but that was not in his plan. That was not in his purposes for training these people. Um, The uh, great reformer John Calvin in his commentary explains, God might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished to make the, by the bitter, to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their own hearts. You know, we can say then in the light of verse 26 here in, in chapter, <clears throat> pardon me, chapter 15, where God explains this healing of the water by saying, the Is- if the Israelites will listen to him and keep his statutes, he will be their healer. He will heal them of the bitter consequences of sin. He will heal them of the bitterness that was in their own hearts. If they will obey him, uh, he will not bring upon them the diseases that brought, uh, he brought upon the Egyptians as judgment uh, for sin. But what do these people do? They don't go to the Lord for help. They, they blame Moses. They cry out to him. And uh, God responds to Moses' cry. Moses turns to the Lord and calls upon the Lord here. And God answers. He tells them, here's this log or tree. Take it, cast it into the waters. It will be healed of its bitterness. And uh, in fact, uh, in verse 25, there's that word showed. God showed this to him. It's from the very same root from which the word in Hebrew Torah or the law is derived. And you will hear the Old Testament law in Hebrew referred to as the Torah. Um, This helps us to understand something here. Uh, God gives to Moses instructions, and, God, and Moses' obedience to those instructions are going to result in blessing. God tells the people, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And this word Torah uh, is... Uh, better translated uh, uh, a showing of of a way, uh, directing on a path. And that's what uh, God's word does for us. God is saying, if you obey, you will be blessed. He is saying, do this and you will live. And that raises an important question here. Is this saying that the way for us to get God's blessings is by our performance of his commands, our obedience to these particular commands. That's how some of the commentators uh, will interpret this verse, how, how they would look at this. Uh, that, you, you know, there's kind of a quid pro quo. You do this and you get that. Uh, if you do this, then that will occur. In fact, uh, one evangelical commentator on this passage had this to say, God's blessing is always dependent on his obedience of his children to his revealed will. 
Now, on the surface, this sounds like a plausible interpretation. But if it is true, then how are we going to explain the things that take place in this passage? Because God blesses the people. God gives to them sweet water. God gives to them manna and quail. God gives to them abundant water in the midst of this. Do we see the obedience of the people in any of these three passages? Absolutely not. We see the exact opposite of it. We see a distrust of God, a disobedience, a grumbling, a complaining, a whining uh, against God. And so as we look at this, we see that in each of these circumstances that we heard here when when this passage was read, God's people failed to listen to God's voice and to obey him. But in every one of these circumstances, God pours out his blessing upon them. I think this makes clear that God gives the conditional promise here in verse 26 in order to help his people see that they fail at obedience, that they cannot meet this standard uh, that God has set to do this. It shows to them that they need help, that they need a savior. It is true that God's blessings have to be merited, but we are incapable of meriting them in ourselves. Isaiah says that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags in God's sight. Uh, we, we cannot earn or merit or deserve this blessing of God because we cannot even in the slightest in the very least portion, do anything that is pleasing to God in and of ourselves. Uh, it can only be merited on the behalf uh, uh, for us on, on the behalf of someone acting for us. And God has done that for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience upon our behalf. And then notice here in the second place, here in verse 16, you see God's grace manifested with the manna and the quail, and God giving to them rest as well. They, they get this period of, in, of refreshment there at Elam, at the springs, and they set out again on their journey uh, throughout the wilderness, a pillar of fire and, and the cloud leading them and, and protecting them as they are going out. It's not long, though, before their food supplies began to run out. All the stuff that they had brought with them uh, from Egypt is running out, and whatever they've been able to forage along the way, and it's not going to be a lot because they are in the desert and you've got two and a half million people plus all the livestock uh, that they're going to have to feed. And so what do they do? Uh, They respond again by grumbling. They cry out against Moses and Aaron Uh, against God's servants, against his appointed officers, as it were. And so not only are they just crying out against these two fellows, Moses and Aaron, they are crying out against God's appointed agents. And as such, they are also crying out against God. As they grumble, they look back, oh, we had food back there in our pots when we were slaves back in Egypt. Uh, We had food enough to eat whilst we were slaves back there. But now here they are free to serve the Lord, but they perceive that they are going to die of starvation out here in the middle of this wilderness, and Moses and Aaron are the guys who are to blame. You fellows have led us out here. You have taken us out here in order that we're going to die out here in the desert. 
Once again, God responds to this, uh, to their lack of faith with remarkable patience. He doesn't rebuke. He doesn't condemn. But he tells Moses, I'm going to rain down bread for you from heaven. On top of that, God is going to manifest his glory to the people. He's going to assure them, I am with you, that they can see that he is there. As it says here in verse 10, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. What an astonishing piece of kindness this is. Uh, and compassion that God has for his people. He responds to our complaints by meeting our needs and reassuring us that, that he is there with us. You see, that is more important, I think, than the mere fact that they have the manna out there on the ground, that God has assured us, I am with you in the promise of our Lord Jesus, I am with you, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Here this God is there to show his people his presence there, but then also rains down this heaven and or rains down from heaven this bread. Now they go out and in Hebrew is manahu or or literally what's this? You know, as they go out, and so that's the name. What's it? What what is this? And ma'na, uh, what's this? And this this substance out on the ground and and, and they're commanded to gather it up, scoop it up. They can use it. They can bake with it. Uh, they can do all kinds of preparation work uh, for it. And as they go and gather it, each day will be just enough for that day. But just enough is a feast for them. It is, it is not just kind of uh, hard rations that they are forced to endure. This is like wafers with honey. And you know the, the very best of the of the, the very best of the pastry chefs uh, could prepare. This is the type of food that God is giving to them, and He's going to give to them on a daily basis. And by this, day by day, they are to gather this up. God is placing them in a relationship of perpetual dependence upon Him. Uh, isn't that what we pray when we pray our Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our what? our daily bread, or our bread day by day. In one of the great statements uh, of the faith in the time of the Reformation uh, is the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's divided up into 52 Lord's Days, so a section for each Sunday. And at uh, Lord's Day 50, at question and answer 125, it asks, what is the fourth petition in our Lord's Prayer? Uh, The answer is, give us this day our daily bread. That is, be pleased to provide for all our bodily needs, that we may thereby know that you, that is God, are the only foundation of all good, and that without your blessing, neither our care and labor nor your gifts can profit us, and may therefore withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it alone in you. See, this is God training his people day by day, to depend upon him, to provide for their needs, to trust him. And as God's servants, they are bound to trust in his good pleasure. Uh, but they don't learn. They, they, they just can't, can't get with this. Uh, as American Southerners might say, there ain't much education in the second kick of a mule. If you didn't learn it the first time, there's not much hope you're going to learn it the second time. 
And yet, here we have people who, they don't learn it the first time. They're not going to learn it the second time. They don't quite learn it the third time. But God is patient with them each and every way. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the late Russian writer in his novel, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisevich, uh, said, The belly is an ungrateful wretch. It never remembers past favors. It always wants more tomorrow. Isn't that the case with us, isn't it? It is, we treat God as if, you know, God, what have you done for me lately? And instead of understanding what he has taught us over and again. But God satisfies their hunger with the quail by night, and he provides for them with the manna that is uh, coming down. And this miraculous provision of the manna was not just God meeting his people's physical needs, The Lord is also using this experience to demonstrate how he provides spiritual life for his people. The passage that we had read in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is interpreting this and the giving of the manna, that he is that bread from heaven. He has been given by the grace of our Heavenly Father uh, for us. Uh, He told the crowd, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. If I I am the living bread that came down from heaven, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then later on there in John uh, chapter 6 that we did not read, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, uh, you have no life in you. And he later on talks about that he is, if anyone uh, comes and drinks freely of the waters uh, from him. You see, God's providing this manna in the wilderness is the symbol of this spiritual life that he pours out upon his people in the Lord Jesus. And without it, the Israelites would have died there in in the wilderness. They would have perished. They would have been gone. In that same way, we cannot live without our Lord Jesus Christ. That we have this continual sustenance, this continual dependence upon him. If we don't, our souls will perish for all eternity. We are as dependent upon Jesus for spiritual life as we are dependent upon food for physical life. And in the giving of this manna, God is also testing his people. He tells Moses in And verse 4 of chapter 16, they're to follow his instructions about how to gather up this manna that I may test them. And the specific instructions, you have this curious uh, giving of every day, the six days of the week, you may gather it. But on that sixth day, you gather double. You remember at noontime, uh, it would melt uh, when the sun uh, beat down upon it and melted it. Uh, the people were to gather just enough. If they gathered more than was going to be enough, uh, it grew worms and it, it stank. It, it was not usable for them. But they could gather each of those days just enough for that day. But God is saying to them, okay, on the sixth day, here's what you do. You don't go out and gather at the seventh day. That's a day of rest. That's a Sabbath, a resting time. But on that sixth day, I will give you enough to carry you over. I'll keep it and preserve it. It won't uh, stink and it won't uh, uh, grow worms like it does on the other days because you're following my commands here. 
and so they have this, this day set apart for them uh, that is a day to rest. They're to cease from their labors. They're not to go out and, and expend their efforts in the gathering of the food. They may spend that time resting. This gracious provision of God in this day of rest for them because they've been slaves and it's not just six days you shall labor and do all your work. It's seven days a week. And it's hard labor. But now God graciously is giving them this day that they might rest in him. A day that's to be set apart from the other days. A day to find refreshment for their souls. For prayer and for praise. For, for reading and hearing of God's word. And doing good unto our fellow men. This this provision of rest here, uh, this command, tests our faith. It, it confronts us with the question of whether we're going to trust the Lord to provide for us through the work that he gives us to do those other six days of the week. And we need to consider that uh, when God uh, uh, gives this day of rest, it's not to be a burden, but be a day of joy, to be a day of rejoicing in his goodness towards us. It's a symbol of that rest that we are going to finally and fully enjoy in God's kingdom. And every day that we have this day of rest that comes in our week, it's a day to find refreshment and and sustenance as we look forward to that day when we will enter into the final rest in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice in, in chapter 17, another incident here of God's grace to griping grumblers, the abundant waters. Here they continue on their way through the wilderness. They camp at a place uh, called Rephidium. It means resting place. And imagine the dismay the Israelites have when they discover that resting place uh, is not one that would look like a resting place because they can't find any water. Uh, they, they, they're not able to to enjoy and, and to drink uh, and to be satisfied here. And, and you imagine they are keyed up about this, the tension uh, that arises in this. And so they respond again in a sinful manner. Instead of calling out to the Lord for help, what do they do? They quarrel with Moses. Now this word here uh, is translated in the Hebrew. It's, it's a legal term. It's as if you are filing a formal judicial complaint against someone. Uh, It is a lawsuit, as it were. You're filing against someone. And it's as if, you know, in the States, when you file a lawsuit against someone, you have somebody who comes and serves process on you, the legal papers informing you uh, that uh, you are being sued and and there are going to be hearings about this. And so the process server comes up and, are you so-and-so? Yes. Here you go. And that notice, this is what's happening to Moses. They are crying out to him. They're making formal complaint against Moses. It's exactly what the people are doing here. They're filing a lawsuit against Moses. And remember, it's not just against Moses, but who does Moses represent? The living and true God. They're lodging a formal complaint against God here. They're charging him with doing wrong. Uh, They're charging God with abandoning them and leaving them to die out in the desert. It says in verse uh, 7, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Imagine the audacity of this, the sheer brazenness 
of them in this. God has done so much for this people. He has proven his faithfulness over and over and over. He has displayed his power to them in just wondrous ways. And he has been so patient with them when they have doubted him and grumbled against him. He has not given them what they deserve. He has given to them of his grace. He's demonstrated that he is able to overcome lack of water and lack of food. But here they decided, you know, this is, this is that straw that breaks the camel's back for us. This is something that we're not going to, to uh, tolerate any longer. They're sick and tired of being brought to places that have no food or water. And this time, God's going to have to answer for what he has failed to do uh, to us and for us. <clears throat> Moses understands what's going on here. They're filing this, this complaint against God. And that's why he tells God that the people are ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him for, for this wrongdoing. And he's not exaggerating here. You know how preachers sometimes will say something and it'll be exaggerated a bit? This is no exaggeration. This is how angry the people are uh, with Moses. And as God's representative, uh, he is there. And, and this lawsuit is against Moses, but ultimately against God. They're ready to pronounce him guilty and to put him to death. Well, how do you think God would respond to this? Uh, Wouldn't you think that he would say, okay, enough is enough. That's it. With these people, I'm pulling the plug. That's it. It's over. But he doesn't do that. He does something that is utterly astounding. What does he do? Well, He instructs Moses to take the elders, the men who serve as judges in the community. He tells Moses to take the staff which God had used to execute judgment against Egypt, the symbol of the authority and power of God. And God says, behold, I will stand there on the rock at Horeb. Again, God is showing himself to the people. God is demonstrating his presence there. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. You see what this means. God is there, present in judgment. But in the place of judgment, he shows mercy. He shows grace. God hadn't done anything wrong. The Israelites have sinned against the living and true God by grumbling against him, and yet he takes this punishment that they deserve, and the result is a spring of water. The people, this gusher of water coming out is as if they're swimming for the sides. Uh, It's just coming out with such force and and such uh, greatness, enough to quench the thirst of the two and a half million people and all of their livestock. In doing so, God is foreshadowing what Christ Jesus is going to do for his own people at the cross. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, that the rock that Moses struck was Christ. Uh, Edmund Clowney uh, said, Before the face of Moses the judge, with his rod uplifted, stands the God of Israel. The Lord stands in the prisoner's dock. God the judge bears the judgment. He receives the blow that their rebellion deserves. This shows us How a just and holy God can be gracious to grumbling, griping sinners like you and me. It shows that we can have the Lord as our healer. 
even though we fail to keep his commandments time and again. In spite of our continued failing, God patiently and persistently extends his grace to us because his justice has been satisfied through that substitutionary death of his Son on behalf of all who look to him in faith. God pleads with you through this word today. Your griping and grumbling and rebellion against him, he would heal you so freely. Come to him. Come to our Lord Jesus Christ, that one is appointed to be the Savior of sinners like you and me, griping, grumbling people who shake the fist at God, and he comes and gives to us life in him. Let us pray. Gracious God, over and over, we see your dealings with your children uh, many, many, many centuries ago and with us. And that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You extend to us grace when we don't deserve it. Lord, uh, use us to, to pry open our hearts that might be hardened against you. To show that the goodness of God uh, should lead us to repentance. To come before you with confession of our sins and clinging to our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have struck so that in him we might have life and healing and joy and peace now and forever. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.